Amen. <clears throat> if you have elementary age kids or below, Miss uh, Bethany has taken them right out the side door there. Likewise, if you have fifth or sixth grade kids, uh, we have a great opportunity for them as well. Going out that back door, Mr. Deacons, Miss Umberto are taking you out that direction. Love for you to be a part of those things that are happening. For those of you here for the very first time, again, I want to welcome you to Divine Community Church. My name is Trevor Prater. I am honored, and we are honored that you would give us part of your Sunday morning. Um, you have stumbled into week 25 of a kind of journey that we're making through the Gospel of John. Part of the way that we like to teach and open Scripture is really working through context and books, page by page, verse by verse, idea by idea, exploring those things with my whole intention and goal is to help you fall in love with God's Word, right? So this is our deepest desire as a church is not that you would be entertained or would have a great time or would say, hey, look, that wasn't terribly boring, but that you would have an encounter with God's Word, that you would fall in love with Scripture, and that would slowly begin to change who we are as a community. It would change the way that we think about Jesus, the way we think about each other, the way we think about the world, the way we think about life, our resources, things, stuff, like truly encountering God's word turns everything upside down. And the sole desire of every church and every believer should be to have these radical encounters with the living God, right? So not an entertainment circle or system, but, but a passion to come together and say, God, we want to know you, reveal your truth to us. And we've been in the book of John for 25 weeks now. We've really been buried in chapter 5 and 6 for quite some time. We spent five weeks in chapter 5. This is the fifth week in chapter 6 because they're so theologically important to what John is trying to do that we've needed to spend some time there. So John's entire gospel, remember, is not to tell the history of the life of Jesus. The other gospels are sort of painted that way. They're there to tell the, the historical side of the life of Christ and the stories of his disciples and how he came to be who he is, if you will. But John's gospel is really centered around one central desire, and that is that you would know that Jesus is God, that he is the incarnation, God in the flesh. And John is concerned with you knowing Jesus as Lord. And so everything in his gospel is central to that truth. And chapters 5 and 6 are paramount in that uh, kind of unpacking because they are theologically deep in terms of Jesus making claims about himself as being God, that he and the Father are in fact one. And then chapter 6, we spent the past few weeks, has two really important miracles in it, one where Jesus feeds 5,000, and the other where he walks out on water and then ultimately kind of rescues Peter, as we talked about a few, years, uh, a few weeks ago, and puts it feels like years, and puts him on the boat, right? And then he calms the wind and the waves, showing that not only does Jesus claims to have, his claim to have the, the sort of oneness with God, have authority and power over ordinary things like bread and fish, but that he even calms the wind and has the authority and power over things like water and nature and stuff. And they, they support the claims that he has made about himself. Well, where we are in terms of our context, we've been in the same place for three weeks and literally the same physical place. Jesus has fed 5,000. He has crossed the lake. He has walked on the water and he's landed on the shore. And when he lands on that other shore, he's greeted by a group of people, a group of people that came looking for him. They actually <clears throat> took boats across the lake to try and chase Jesus down because they were looking for him to do another miracle. And so Jesus and the disciples land on the other side of the lake. He encounters this group of people. And he has this, well, really no better way of putting it than to say a little confrontation with them. And it's lasted two weeks, and it will go into this week. And so Jesus is still right in the middle of all of those moments we've been talking about for the past five or six weeks. And he has this encounter with this crowd. And it all begins with Jesus kind of looking at them and saying, 
why are you really looking for me, right? He looks at him and says, you're not really searching for me because you saw me do a miraculous sign over there with the loaves and fish and you thought it was really wonderful and you wanted to see more of me. He says, no, you came looking for me because you liked that I fed you. You liked the outcome of the miracle. And he really calls out their motives. And that begins this sort of confrontation where Jesus begins to talk about who he really is, that he was sent by God as the bread of heaven, right, to sustain and give life. And it causes an uproar with this crowd because the teaching, as we're going to see today, is going to get incredibly difficult. In fact, at the end of this section, we're going to see some of Jesus' own disciples, own big crowd disciples, leave because they're going, this is just too much to take. It's just too hard. And last week, Brandon led us right up to where we are today, which is Jesus talking about himself as the bread of life that was sent down from heaven to not only sustain life here, but to give eternal life. And as just a quick reminder and reference of what Jesus is referring to, in the Old Testament, the idea of God's provision coming through bread is really important because when the, when the Israelites left Egypt in that 40 years and they wandered Egypt before they or wandered from Egypt uh, in the wilderness before they went to the promised land, they faced very difficult circumstances in life. And one of those was the scarcity of food. And God was the ultimate provider, right? That whole section of the text where the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness is really about God providing for them in the middle of their desperation. And one of the ways that God provided for them in the scarcity of food was that every morning he would provide manna from heaven. It would show up in the morning and the Israelites would go up and gather it. They had very specific instructions about gathering it and they would eat it and God would sustain them. But when it first came, they didn't know what it was. In fact, they looked at each other and they said, what is this? The actual Hebrew word manna really means, what is this? They're going, what is this? And Moses goes, this is bread from God to sustain you and nurture you, right? And every day God would give them new manna, new bread, and he would sustain them. And there was a belief that when the Messiah came, he would renew the sending of the manna, right? And what Jesus said and what Brandon explored a little bit of last week was that Jesus says, not only am I renewing the sending of the manna, but that manna is me. I am the bread of life sent from heaven for you, that anyone who believes in me has real life, right? Complicated, deep teaching. And Jesus is going to actually make it worse this week, right? He's not going to simplify it. He's going to make it worse or more complicated, and people are going to go, that's it. We can't hang out here anymore. It's killing us. So if you got your Bible, I want you to open up to John 6. We're going to explore this idea in the context of what we celebrate in the church today uh, in terms of communion, to talk about exactly what this idea of bread of life means, what it means for us, how we celebrate this table, even Paul's instructions to the church about what we do when we celebrate Jesus as the bread of life. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to John chapter 6. We're going to be in 50, how about 52 through 59, and then we're going to jump over to uh, 1 Corinthians a little bit too this morning. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn there, and then let's just take a moment and let's pray. So John 6, 52. Lord, you are great. You are good. You are faithful. Lord, we are not. We are none of those things. We are mess-ups. We are broken. We are fearful. We are anxious. We are weak. We are worriers. God, we don't trust. Lord, we are a just broken people, every one of us, myself deeply, deeply included. Lord, we need you. God, we require you. God, we have to have you. You are not only the giver of all things that are eternal, 
You are the giver of the very breath of life that we have. You are the reason, God, that we can wake up in the morning. You are the reason that we are even able to draw breath. You are that good. And Lord, as we saw last week, you tell us that you draw us to yourself. Oh, that through the person of Jesus Christ, Lord, you draw us to yourself. And so, Lord, we can't come to you on our own. We know that you are the drawer of people. And so, God, we ask this morning as we gather in this place that you would, that you would draw us to your spirit, Lord. Lord, that we wouldn't try and discover you, but that you would reveal truth to us and that you would meet us right where we are. Take a moment in your own heart, wherever you sit this morning, and just ask the Lord to meet you where you are. I don't know what that means for you. I don't know what the Lord's speaking to you, but just ask the Lord to meet you and to teach you this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you or in front of you. We do this each week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. Everything that unfolds this morning is not about you. Pray that God would move in someone else's life, even if you don't know their name, even if you've never seen them before, or maybe you wake up with them every single day, pray for them as well. Just pray that God would move in someone else's life. Lord, we turn this morning over to you. We ask you to teach our hearts to be present in this place, to fill us, to restore us, to redeem us through the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're going to start in 51 because I want you to see where Brandon left off last week because that last verse is really what's going to sort of throw everyone into turmoil. They're going to begin to argue among themselves, and then Jesus is going to not calm things down but escalate them with even more difficult teaching. Um, But this is where we left off last week. Verse 51, Jesus says, excuse me, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Verse 52, then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that has come down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. So it's real easy, right, just reading that text to understand how complicated that teaching is. Now, you've got to put yourself in the context of these sort of disciple first followers of Christ. We have the beauty of the context of Scripture at our discretion. We have it right in front of us. We know the end of the story. We know what happens in about, oh, months from now when Jesus will ultimately be betrayed, handed over, crucified, and killed. Where in that night in the upper room, he will gather with his disciples and he will take bread as we will do this morning. And he breaks it and he explains to them some of the things that are unfolding. But in these very moments, none of that has yet to happen, right? It's no doubt that John is alluding to the idea of communion, which we'll get to in just a moment. But these followers right here and these Jews that came looking for a miraculous sign don't know any of that. 
They don't have the luxury of knowing how the story ends and unfolds. What they see is that Jesus says, not only am I the bread that God has sent on a basis of sustaining your life, but in order to have true real life, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And that's real food and drink. And you can see immediately why these folks begin to argue. They're arguing among themselves, saying, how can he actually give us his flesh to eat? Because, of course, they are using and thinking about Jesus' literal words because they have no other context for it. And instead of calming the situation down and saying, hey, listen, I don't really mean you're going to saw off my arm and eat it. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless you eat my flesh, which is real food, and you drink my blood, which is real drink, you will not have life. And what we're going to see next week is that some of the disciples look at this teaching and they say, this is just too hard, and they leave, right? Jesus had multiple layers of disciples. It wasn't just the 12. There were groups of people that followed him, and a lot of those people just up and leave. And we're going to look at that next week, how that teaching is so complicated. But what we're going to do this morning is we're actually going to couple it with exactly what John is talking about. John is referring to what is to come. He's painting a picture of what Jesus is going to do ultimately on the cross and what that's going to mean for you and I as followers of Christ as we celebrate and talk about the Lord's Supper or communion or Eucharist or whatever word you want to use to define and describe that event that has united us as followers of Christ. John is certain that that is what Jesus is referring to. And we're going to pull out a few anchors that I want us to hang on to, and then we're going to shift over to 1 Corinthians. There's a few anchors we have to understand about what Jesus is saying here before we can really move and understand what takes place at that table. The first anchor is this, that in order to have life, true real life, right? Jesus says it himself, you must partake in the flesh and blood of Jesus. So Jesus himself says, in order to have life, right? You have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. So in order to have true, real, abundant life, life that you were created for, life that I was created for, life here on earth, abundant, real life, we have to partake in the blood and body of Christ. Now we're going to explain that in a moment, but let's hold on to that for a second because that's the first anchor point. Life here, the life you were created for on this earth, breathing, drawing breath, acting, living, right, can only be full if we have and partake in Jesus, his body and blood, okay? The second anchor we see is that when we partake in this flesh and blood of Jesus, not only do we have real true life, but we have the promise of eternal life. So Jesus himself says that when we drink of this blood, we have, without it we have no life in you. Whoever eats this flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So we've got two promises in there. That when we partake in the body and blood of Christ, we have real abundant true life and we have the promise of eternal life in which Jesus will raise us up at the resurrection of the last day. So there are two really important central things that we have to understand first and foremost about what Jesus is talking about. It is all about life. That Jesus is the secret, the answer, the the central piece of life here on earth and the promise of eternal life, right? It's a central piece of the gospel that his body and his blood are central to knowing abundant life here on earth and having the promise of eternal life. So we have to hang on to those two things because they will make a difference, okay? Finally, the last thing is this, and I want you to see, and then we're going to move over. There is something both theologically literal 
and spiritually metaphorical that Jesus is talking about, right? So communion is complex. It's complex because we know that it's metaphorical in terms of its nature, that Jesus isn't actually saying, you need to gnaw on my flesh and cut my body and drink of my blood. It is spiritually metaphorical in a sense, but it is theologically literal. That what that means is that unless we partake in the death of Jesus and we are covered by the blood of Jesus, which is literally theologically true, we have no life. The symbolic and metaphoric nature of what he's referring to has to do with his death and his resurrection, right? And we have to be careful with that because there has been a lot of heresy over the years of the church that have been built around trying to take a literal meaning to what Jesus is talking about theologically, right? To do it physically. These anchor points are really, really important because they are going to help us spiritually approach communion theologically correct. So taking in, taking in Jesus' flesh and blood is about taking an abundant life here. It's also about taking in the promise of eternal life. That without Jesus, we have neither. We have neither real abundant life here on earth and we don't have the promise of eternal life at the last day. And there is something both literal, in terms of theod- theologically, and mysterious, right? Metaphorical, when we talk about the spiritual side of this, that are super important to what we're doing. Which means this is not a throwaway table. It is incredibly important to our life theologically, but we have to understand the mystery that's taking place. Now, we're going to anchor ourselves there because I want to jump over to to 1 Corinthians because we're now going to look at exactly what Paul is going to give instructions to the church of what these things mean when we celebrate this table together. So if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, now the church in Corinth was a hot mess. I mean, first of all, a lot of the churches were hot messes, but they are a big one. They are a white hot mess. Um, They're in a massive debate about who is even correct in terms of who follows who in the church. They have this big argument going on about I should follow this guy, Apollos, and I follow Cephas, and I follow Paul, and I follow Christ. And they're arguing, and they're infighting, and they're, they're just dealing with a whole bunch of garbage. And Paul writes this letter to try and smooth that out and to unify the church. The entire letter of 1 Corinthians is really written about unity. It's written about how to come together as the church and begin to understand that we are commonly united through Jesus Christ and not brought together by our differences, right? Because a lot of times the church, not the church necessarily sitting in here, but the bigger church, maybe in our city or in the globe or the country, right? We are defined by our differences. Oh, you're a Methodist. That means you don't believe this or you do that. Or you're a Baptist and you do this and you don't do that. Or or you're a Pentecostal and you do this and you don't do that. And, And we're defined by the things that differentiate who we are instead of the uniting factors of what we believe about who Jesus is, right? It's how we've defined the church. We've come to put labels on it, right? We even label our own worship, traditional, contemporary, whatever, whatever. We label the things by their differences instead of by what unites us. And that's what is happening in the church in Corinth, is that they are labeling themselves in pockets by the things that divide them. And Paul writes this letter attempting to unify them. Well, in chapter 11, he's addressing it in terms of communion because they have perverted the idea of communion. Some are taking it individually. Some are actually taking it, turning it into a drunken feast where they don't share it with anybody. They just eat and drink until they're passed out. And Paul says, you all are missing this point completely, right? 
Something here is unfolding and you are not understanding the nature of what you're celebrating when we talk about communion. And so what we're going to do is we're going to use these anchor points that we talked about in John, right? That unless we partake in the blood and the body of Christ, we have no abundant life here, no promise of eternal life in heaven. And we have to understand the literal and symbolic metaphor nature of what's unfolding. And we're going to use those and let's see what Paul gives instruction to the church how we celebrate this table and how it should change us. So the church in Corinth, man, they're trying to get it. And Paul writes these instructions because they've missed it. So let's look at uh, verse 23, and we're going to go down through 29. He just got through telling them a few verses earlier that they've turned communion into a giant mess, that they're doing it for the wrong reasons, that some of you do it without humility, some of you take it and, and just get hammered. He's just like, you have blown it. This is what he says. For I have received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. So Paul says, look, you don't really understand what you're doing. And it's really important that you do because this is something that Jesus gave us. So the church throughout history has anchored itself essentially to two ordinances or sacraments that Jesus himself has commanded the church to do. Now, those of you with Catholic backgrounds will say, wait, there's actually seven. Catholic church believes there's seven. The main Protestant church believes there are two. And they are baptism and the Lord's Supper. They're the two institutes that Jesus himself gave the church to do and to practice. The idea of communion uh, comes, or the, the word actually comes from the Greek word koinonia, which means fellowship. Also is often called the Lord's Supper, called the Eucharist, which is another word that comes from a Greek word called Eucharisteo, which just really just means to give thanks. They all mean the same thing. They are the celebration of what Jesus has commanded the disciples to do on the night that he was betrayed, to do in remembrance of him as a remembering and a promise of what he's done and what's to come. So however, whatever background you come from, whatever word you use, we're all talking about the exact same thing, what instructions that Jesus gave his disciples on that very night. And the church, even in the first century, had blown it. They had messed it up. They had perverted it. Paul writes them to say, listen, understand what you're doing. And I thought it was a really good point for us today because we come from all different backgrounds, right? The truth is no one in this room grew up in this church right? We weren't even around. So if you think you did, you're wrong. You may have grown up the past four and a half years here, but that's about it. So we don't have this united history of theology and ideas that we've built on for all of your life. We come from all different places. And a lot of you have come from places because you were disenchanted. You didn't like where you were going. It's too big, too small, too loud, too quiet, too whatever, right? I didn't like the way they do this. And so we bring our baggage in here from some other church and we all gather around with our theological baggage or our whatever it is, and we sit here and we are not coming from the same background, which is wonderful and beautiful and okay, except it makes things really complicated. It's what's happening in Corinth. They're bringing various ideas and no one's sitting together saying, what does the word of the Lord say about these things? And so this morning, 
whatever your background or history is, let's just take a moment and let's see what God's word says about what we're doing together, right? And that's what Paul is essentially saying to the church in Corinth. Use these anchors that John has given us and let's look at what we celebrate. And there's a few things that we know that we're doing. Paul says them very clearly. The first is that we are remembering, right? So he says, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, that very faithful night, right? He gathers his disciples, he takes bread, and he breaks it, and he says, this is my body, broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup, he said, this cup is the covenant of my blood, whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. So, first thing that we do when we celebrate communion of the Lord's Supper is that we are remembering. What are we remembering? We're remembering the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. When we gather together and we celebrate communion, we are first of all remembering what Jesus has done for us. Because we have short memories as followers of Christ. It's all about what are you doing now, right? What is unfolding now? The intention of communion is to gather together and remember that the God of the universe sent his son Jesus as the incarnation, the very presence of himself to break into our world, to walk flawlessly and sinlessly, mimicking and showing us what a holy life looks like, calling us to emulate that life, going to the cross to die for all the garbage and sin in your life that you will ever commit and ever have committed, that if we put our faith and trust in him, right, we will have eternal life because God conquered death of the resurrection of Jesus. When we celebrate communion, we are remembering that. We're not remembering that it's the first Sunday of the month and we do that on the first Sunday of the month. We're not remembering this is part of what we kind of did growing up. We're remembering what Jesus did. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Every time we gather we are remembering that God provided for us and we couldn't provide for ourselves. That if left up to our own devices, we are headed for death and decay. But God, who is infinitely in love with us and relentlessly pursues us, sent his son Jesus to die and then raised him from the dead so that if we put our faith in him, we have eternal life. We are remembering the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. The second thing that we see and that we, we do when we celebrate communion is that we are uniting. So if we were to go back and look five verses earlier and kind of go from about 17 all the way down through 29, you will see that Paul uses the phrase come together in those few verses five times. The entire kind of backbone of the book of 1 Corinthians is about unity. It's about coming together. In fact, just one chapter earlier, he's going to tell them that when you celebrate communion, you break bread from the same Loaf, meaning that we may be from all different walks of life, but we are all partaking in the same Jesus, the bread of life from heaven. It's what unites us. It what, we are all different in here, right? We're from different backgrounds. We're from different places. We're from different ethnic groups. We're from different socioeconomic statuses. We are united, however, by our common need for the same bread of life. When we take communion, it is the single most unifying thing that the church does. Even more so than when we gather to worship. When we all partake in the bread of life, we are unified not by where we go or what we do or how we dress, but by the God that brings us together. The table is the single greatest unifying factor of the church because it reminds us that we all need Jesus. It's what unites us from this church to the one right next door. 
uh, Crown Heights Methodist. It's what unites us to the church over on the other side of town. It's what unites us to the churches in our city and in our state, in our country, and across the world. It's what knits us together with believers that are huddled underground in China, our friends that are in Uganda or Peru, Reagan who is in Thailand. It's what unites us is this common bread of Jesus, right? So we are, we are remembering, we are uniting together, right? So we've got these two pieces. Paul also says that we are proclaiming. Look down there at verse 26. For whenever you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. So you know what we do when we celebrate communion? We are proclaiming that we believe Jesus is Lord. This table, Paul gives very instructions that it's very specific instructions that it's not for, for non-believers. It is a table that unifies believers because of their common belief that Jesus died and rose again. And when we take of this bread and this cup, we are proclaiming the death of Christ. We are proclaiming the lordship of Christ. And the lordship of Christ is a very important theological idea in the life of a believer because the lordship of Christ says that Jesus is my Lord, meaning he is Lord of my life. And when we say Jesus is Lord of my life, it means that he is in charge of and over all and gets all of me. When we surrender our hearts to the Lordship of Christ, we are saying, Jesus, your will, not my will. And when we proclaim that, when we take communion, God, you died for me. You raised me from death to life. You are my Lord and my Savior. Therefore, my life belongs to to you. We are proclaiming the lordship of Christ. We are remembering, we are uniting, we are proclaiming, and then finally we are anticipating, because the last part of that verse says that we are proclaiming the death of Christ until he comes. Right, Matthew says, until he comes again. We believe that this world is not the end, Right? We believe that Jesus will come back, that he will restore and make all things new, that he will wipe away every tear, that there will be no more hurt and no more sickness, no more pain or no more sadness, that this world is not the end, and we believe that Jesus will come. Come quickly is what we're saying. Lord, I proclaim that you will come again, and I am living in anticipation that you will come back and redeem all that is broken. Because look, this world is broken. It is shattered. It is divided, right? Think about the sin and death that echo through every one of its alleys and crevices and corners. The things that still exist, the brokenness, the hurt, racism, division, pain, struggling, death, those things are real. And we believe in a God that is going to come and restore and renew and bring life and redeem. And when we celebrate communion, we are proclaiming the death of Christ and his lordship, but we are also anticipating that he will come and he will rescue and he will redeem us. We believe that. And we anchor ourselves to it. And so what Paul is saying is, church, listen, this thing that Jesus gave us where he tells us that his flesh and his blood, we have to partake in them to have real life here and the promise of eternal life in heaven, that that mysterious, spiritual, incredibly important theological thing, it unites us together because we remember Christ. We're brought together as one community. It's both intricately personal and beautifully communal all at the same time. This deep personal love relationship with Jesus yet meant to be carried out in the context of community, 
That's Christianity. And it's beautiful. And it's redeeming. And we proclaim the death of Christ, right? And we are united and we live in this anticipation. He's saying, church, this should be what brings us together. And there's two things that we're affirming in the middle of that. So the things we're, we're kind of doing and proclaiming, but the two things that are being affirmed. The first thing is being affirmed is, is Jesus' love for you. If there's ever a picture in all of this sort of picture of church of the way Jesus loves you, it's communion. Paul even says that when we take of this bread, right, his body is broken and the blood is shed for you. This table is an affirmation of how much Jesus loves you. And I've been saying this about the gospel of John every time we kind of wrap up, and that is that Jesus loves you and he has come for you. The table is that picture that you and all of your brokenness and all of your sinfulness and all of your mistakes and all the things that you've done wrong, myself included in that picture, deeply, that God loved you and pursued you and died for you and rose so that you might know him. It is an affirmation of just how much God loves you and how worthy you are to be redeemed. Not because of your actions, but because God calls you beloved. Not because you earned it, but because God is in pursuit of you. Communion affirms God's love for you, that Jesus' passionate pursuit of you. It also affirms your faith in him. When we celebrate communion, we're saying, God, I believe you did that for me, and I trust you. Believe it or not, when we share that meal together, that's what we're proclaiming. God, I believe that you loved me enough to send your son Jesus to die and give me life, and I trust you, and I put my faith in you, and I believe you. Which for a lot of us are very hard words to say to the Lord, right? I trust you, and I believe you. But that's what we do when we gather together and we celebrate communion. I believe you are who you say you are, right? And I trust you, and I believe you. So we are affirmed that Jesus loves us and we are affirming our faith in him. And then finally, and then we're going to celebrate this together. I I can't get away from this without going over verses 27 through 29, which are hard but incredibly important. And they're words of warning. And this is what Paul says. Therefore, whoever eats of this bread or drinks of this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. And a man ought to examine himself before he eats in the bread and drinks of the cup. So he says, listen, this is not something we take lightly. This is something we do that is incredibly important. It's mysteriously spiritual. It's theologically literal. And you can't take it lightly. In fact, before you do it, you should examine your heart to make sure your motives are right. Not that your actions are perfect, but that your motives are right. Because what happened on the other side of that lake when that crowd shows up and they look at Jesus and they say, do some fancy miracles for us. And Jesus says, you didn't come looking for me because what I did was wonderful and you want to see me. You came looking for me because you wanted more bread. It's exactly what Paul's saying when he's saying, when we examine our hearts, we come to this table. Why are you here? Are you here because somebody drug you or you feel guilty or it's been two weeks that you've shown up in church? Turn your motives around and say, God, I'm coming to this table because I am in desperate need of you. And because you do for me what I could never do for myself. And I want to examine my heart and make sure it's worthy, not because of my actions, but because I'm not looking for a God to just come and entertain me like a magician. 
but because I believe your words are the words of life and I believe you are the provision sent by God, the bread of life that gives life to the world. And without it, without you, I have nothing. Our motives send us to the side of the lake to look for magic tricks or they drive us to our knees to look for a savior. And I venture to say that most of us, when we come to church, are looking for a God that does magic tricks. Bail me out of this. Help me with this. Provide for me this. Give me that. When our motive should be driving us to our knees to say, God, I can't live without you. I can't draw breath without you. The fact that you love me enough to die for me and then gave me this as a reminder breaks my heart. Help me know you more. Jesus loves you, and he's come for you. This table is this incredible picture of both this deeply personal, intimate love relationship with Jesus and the call of the church to live it out in a deeply community-driven way. This is the bread of life. Literally and figuratively, it is the bread of life. It is the provision of God, manna sent by God for you that Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead so that you might have new life, that it might change the way that we think and love and look at the world. And he gave very specific instructions to the church that says, do this, proclaim this, remember this, unite in this, and anticipate me coming back. On the very night that Jesus was betrayed, on the night that he gathered his disciples, he took bread and he said, this bread is my body, and it is broken for you. In the same manner, after he had given thanks and taken the bread, he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of the sins. This is the new covenant poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. But as long as we take of this bread and this cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. In our community, we take um, communion by means of intinction, which is just a fancy word to say as you come down front, there'll be a station in the back, take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup and, and, and you can eat it. My challenge for you this morning, though, is to really examine your heart. Um, we don't have ushers that are going to lead you row by row, just as you feel led or called to come down and, and participate, but to examine your heart and say, God, why am I here? What are you doing in me? I want to come in a manner that says, I need you and I'm desperate for you, right? Examine your heart to ask yourself, do I really believe that God is who he says he is? That this manna, this daily bread, this, right, this Jesus is all I need. And this table is a reminder of his provision and his saving grace. For those of you that have food allergies, we do have gluten-free body of Jesus down here too, ask our servers to come forward this morning. And as we do, I'm going to pray for us and then we'll continue in worship. And as you feel led, you can come down. But if our servers will come this morning, we'll celebrate together. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who uh, redeems, that you are a God who rescues and calls. That God, you, um, in the middle of our desperation, sent your son Jesus to give us eternal, real, abundant, and true life. Lord, we confess that over the years, we take that lightly. It becomes a habit the churches participate in. But Lord, this morning, help us break that mold. Lord, help us be reminded of your 
incredible provision. So Lord, as we celebrate and we worship you, draw us into your presence. Remind us that we are remembering and that we are uniting and that we are proclaiming and that we are anticipating that you are affirming your love for us, God, and that we are affirming our faith in you as Jesus, Lord of our lives, Redeemer, God. Amen. Let's stand together as you continue. Pay communion. We'll worship together as we spend time at this table.